the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins. We're excited to be with you on this Tuesday afternoon. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. You can find old shows there uh, or on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Also, if you could subscribe to The Common Good uh, wherever you get your podcasts on what? Your mobile device. On mobile device. Your exactly. mobile device. Well said. Ian, somebody asked me the other day, what is the goal of your guys' show? What are you trying to do? And I always think you say it well. So what, when someone asks you, what's the goal of the common good? What are we trying to accomplish? Oh, How man. do you say it? You're putting me on the spot. I am. Uh, for me, I usually say something to the effect of uh, life is messy. We want to enter mm-hmm. into the tents, the things that don't have easy answers, things that don't tie up with a nice bow, uh, but to also engage with the stuff that we have in common. We uh, hope that the people listening um, have a diversity of experiences and backgrounds, and to start first, what are the things that we share in common that we can talk about, hopefully to bring some good to the world, That's but good. also living in the common space, right? The the mundane, ordinary space seems to be where most of us live our life most of the time, not usually a mountaintop or a valley, so yeah. how do we actually think and talk intelligently about just this common life that we all share? See, I like how you do that. Ah, thanks, man. <laughs> good job. Good job. That's our goal. For the common good. Again, I'm Brian Fromm. I'm lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois. And Ian is uh, the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville, Illinois. Hey, what better way to start a Tuesday afternoon, Ian, than with Justin Bieber? I mean, we're always talking about Justin Bieber on this show. You, uh, you pro-Biebs? Are you a believer, as they used to say, or maybe still say? <laughs> Are you a believer? Okay, I'm going to say this. And I realize this is going to be uh, fuel to your fire. I'm ready. Uh, his new oh, stuff, I'm so excited. His new stuff is not that bad. I could go with that. It really isn't. I'm not a believer. Uh, <laughs> I think, honestly, I'll also say this. The fact that he's not more screwed up, uh, given the kind of upbringing and how quickly he rose to superstardom, is kind of a mirror. I'm not saying he's not a little bit, but like. Yeah, he's had his moments. He And uh, he's a legitimate musician. And his new stuff, honestly, is not, is not that terrible. You know what that makes you. Oh, a believer. It doesn't. I yes. don't. I haven't seen the contract laid out <laughs> that specifically. Well, it, real. I want to focus on an interesting story with Justin Bieber, and it's this: that recently he confessed to a quote self-imposed year-long celibacy prior to his marriage, and he said the reason was I wanted to rededicate myself to God. And you get some really interesting things in this article from Justin Bieber. Some really good, and some. Not so good. But yeah. I think one of the interesting things is just this on-again, off-again um, Christian kind of uh, connection for Justin Bieber. He's yeah. kind of – you'll read stories where he's like with Carl Lentz and Hillsong in New York City. Right. 
and, and then you'll read him going kind of off the edge. And it kind of really goes back and forth, which is really interesting. Which to me is probably uh, an indication of a real struggle, a real journey. Like I think, I think a so. lot of people's journeys would more closely resemble that, but we're just not mega superstars, so yes. no one sees it the same way. But I think he's young. He's had a, like a really riddled past. And I don't know. I, I feel I find like I'm defending him way more than I thought that I would. Because, but like when I see when I see him go back and forth, I think, man, who among us hasn't felt some of that like yes. back and forth? Okay, I'm totally in. Okay, maybe I'm not totally into this whole Jesus thing. Okay, I'm back. And like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Like his just happens to be on like a global a global platform. Yeah. And so specifically around this issue of premarital sex, he he says he was very candid. He said, I think I literally had an addiction. Hmm. Uh, that that he was living the rock star lifestyle, if right. you will, right? Um, and he made a commitment before God, and this is before he had ever met his fiance, and uh, who has since married. Uh, he made a commitment of like, because I want to grow in my faith and rededicate myself to God, I'm going to take more seriously the biblical teachings on sexuality and say, okay, I'm maybe I'm going to try this out. He basically in this article says. God doesn't make rules. Instead, he tells us things that are good for us. And, uh-huh. and Bieber said, I'm going to give that a try. Yeah, and he sometimes gives rules, too. Exactly. Good point. <laughs> Valid point. Valid point. But he said, uh, Bieber said, God's like, I'm going to try to protect you from hurt and pain. I think sex can cause a lot of pain. What I hear Bieber saying is it's caused him a lot of pain. Mm. It caused him a lot of pain. And, and so – Soon after this, Justin Bieber met uh, or began dating Haley Baldwin. We sound like we sound like a TMZ show today. <laughs> kind of enjoying this. Isn't that the goal? Uh, of the Baldwin family, right? Alec Baldwin, Stephen Baldwin, all them. Uh, he met Haley Baldwin, and they got married very quickly. They are now married. Um, and now both of them are kind of on this journey of faith. Uh, but here's the paragraph I want to read from you for Justin Bieber, okay? Talking about um, premarital sex and talking about marriage. Bieber says this, sometimes people have sex because they don't feel good enough because they lack self-worth. I think that's right. Mm. Women do that. Guys do that. And I want to rededicate myself to God in that way because I really felt it was better for the condition of my soul. Amen, right? Yeah. I think he's on to something, but we're going to take a turn here. And I believe that God blessed me with Haley as a result. There are perks. You get rewarded for good behavior. Thanks. What are your thoughts about that that whole paragraph in general? <laughs> yeah, that I mean, it's again. How how old is he? He's in his mid twenties. Okay, so he's still like he's still on. I mean, I have to remember that just because he's been a superstar for, for as long as he has been, he's still a kid. Um, and I think that he's identifying some things that maybe are true for his experience. You know, the, the things that we run to when we lack identity and purpose. I'm not saying that's true for everybody, and I think he, you know, he leaves that that space for interpretation there. But the idea that um, you get rewarded for good behavior is is sort of like a modern karmatic expression, right? As long as I do the right things and God's obligated to um, and, you know, reward me in return, it's sort of like a, like a sexual health and wealth gospel a little bit, right? Yes. If I do these things, then these things are guaranteed to happen, um, which that is a, that's a problematic uh, trajectory, I think, when it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our money, when it comes to our theology. The, the thought that, like, as long as I play by the right rules, then God's obligated. He's like you got big yeah. celestial pinata in the sky. He's obligated to you know rain down on me all the things that my heart desires, and I think that 
That is actually a pretty dangerous way of thinking. I think you put it exactly right. We often talk about the prosperity gospel, that if I just have enough faith, if I just pray enough, if I just do enough for God, he's going to give me more money. He's going to give me prosperity. Right. And this is another form of it. Uh, and, and I hope someone's getting to Justin Bieber about this. He says, there are perks. You get rewarded for good behavior. Yeah. And that's just really dangerous. And that's why I wanted to tackle this subject a little bit, because do I believe that obedience is always beneficial? Uh, yes. Do I believe obedience always has perks <laughs> on this side of eternity? Yeah. Probably not. Sometimes obedience makes your life a lot harder and makes makes it more complicated. And uh, this is dangerous. I, like you said, it, God's not a vending machine. Right. Where if I add in my obedience coins, that all of a sudden he spits out what I want to spit out. Well, it may be a conversation for another day because even this idea of rewarded, maybe that's worth talking about a little bit. Because mm-hmm. we do – maybe our understanding of perks in a modern sense isn't right. But maybe what you're saying is when things actually get harder, you know, they get more difficult. Maybe that in some ways is the reward. Mm. You know, like the word blessed shows up hundreds of times in the New Testament, and next to zero of them have anything to do with with monetary prosperity. And yet that's the thing that we go to first. I'm blessed if my job's going really well or if, you know, my house tripled in value. Like those aren't bad things, but the way that the Bible, the early church spoke of being blessed— uh, in a lot of ways, it looks really different than the way that we talk about it today. Yeah. So how would you give that to somebody? How would you tell someone when they say, what does blessed mean for you? What's just some things that come to mind? Yeah. For me, I think it always comes back down to relationships. So sometimes it's uh, joy. Sometimes it's hardship. Those things, um, if they bring our hearts closer to the one who created us, um, if they bring us to a deepening sense of our true identity, if they... Um, reveal to us more and more uh, how truly and deeply loved we are. Like th- those, to me, again, I'm not knocking a parking spot, you know, towards the front of the mall or, or getting a <laughs> job that pays more. It, yeah. And some of those things can be really good, and you can do great things with those resources. I just think, man, at the end of the day, um, I want to be really careful to have a a relational um, understanding of God and not a not a transactional one. Yep. Because the moment. My obedience is the debit card to his ATM. Mm. Then, by inference, every time I don't get the thing that I think I'm deserved, well, then it's got to be God's fault because my two dimensional theology doesn't allow for any other nuance. So, if something happens that I don't want to happen, yep. um, then, I, then, I ha- then I'm obligated to blame God for it. Mm, that's gold. Folks, if we can get that, that God's, that our relationship's not transactional. And that God is not always promised to give us what we think we deserve at all times. And that's what makes the gospel good news. Uh, that is important for us. Well, we're off and getting started on this Tuesday afternoon. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, again joined by Ian Simpkins. And Ian, one of the fun things we get here to do on this radio show is... Uh, to interact and interview people, uh, all sorts of different people, right? That's right. I love it. It's been one of the fun things. And with that in mind, uh, we're going to spend some time with Juliana Slager. Juliana is the artistic director and resident choreographer for Ballet 5-8. She was instrumental in co-founding Ballet 5-8 in 2012. Uh, She has enjoyed training and mentoring her first generation of aspiring artists in Ballet 5-8 School of the Arts, pre-professional and conservatory program. So Juliana, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we're having you on for a specific purpose because there is a, uh, there is a specific ballet coming up uh, this weekend, I believe. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, so Ballet 58 is going to be returning to the Hemans in Elgin, and we're performing a bill called The Space in Between. Um, and the first act is The Four Seasons of the Soul, and the second act is the title program, The Space in Between, which is inspired by The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Oh, wow. I love that. Love that. Okay, so Juliana, um, I mean, it's obvious that Brian and I are both prolific dancers, and uh, we dance all the time, so. That's that's a joke, obviously. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brian was looking at his phone. I don't know that he caught it. But uh, for anyone listening, what's what's uh, a reason, or maybe multiple reasons, someone would go to the ballet? If someone's thinking like, "Well, I don't, I'm not a dancer. I don't know much about dance," would you just cast a vision about why that is, uh, why why that's an important outing and something worth uh, worth making mm-hmm. time for? Yeah, absolutely. No, I hear that all the time. I think there's some, you know, nervousness if you're not a dancer or you don't feel like you understand dance to say, man, is this really for me? Um, You know, is this really something that I can enjoy? And I mean, let's be honest, is it worth the time and the money that it takes to go and see one? And so Mm. I think those questions are totally valid um, and and very much understandable. And I think what I would say is that dance um, is truly the language of all people Mm. because it is not in English or French or Spanish. You know, it's the language of the body. Mm. Um, And we speak through the body every day. Um, You know, 80% of communication is nonverbal. And so dance actually gives you the opportunity to kind of sit back um, and watch and kind of enjoy both the intellectual and visceral aspects of what the human body can do, um, and you'd be surprised at how much you can understand, even if it's your very first time, because it's that universal language of dance. Um, most people come to the theater expecting for things to go over their heads, and they're pleasantly surprised that they really feel engaged and engulfed mm. um, in the music and the movement um, and all of the incredible artistry that goes into making a dance. That really comes across um, probably more strongly than, than you might guess at first wondering. Mm. Tell us a little bit, if people are like, yeah, you know what, I want to go, I'm going to do this. Tell us, uh, tell them a little bit more about what they'll see. So how long is the ballet? What is the age of the performers? What's just paint a picture of what they'll walk into on that day. Yeah, so anyone who enjoys music, art, or sports, you will love the ballet because you've got all three happening. Um, And that very first opening piece, The Four Seasons of the Soul, is set to the iconic score by Vivaldi um, that was recomposed by Max Richter. So the music in and of itself, honestly, is a great reason to be there and to just enjoy um, the incredible 21st century sensibility that Max Richter wove into Vivaldi's classic Mm. score. Um, and you'll see dancers from across the United States. Um, our professional dancers are from all over the place. Um, the youngest performer on stage, I think, is 18 for this show. And um, the older ones, we will not tell you how old they are. <laughs> <laughs> their dignity. But, yeah, you know, they're all, um, you know, young adults to middle-aged adults. And they're, they're pro- uh, professional dancers from all over. And they are prolific in their um, incredible ability to storytell through the athleticism of dance. So that first piece is really based on on athleticism, you see the dancers moving through the season, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, um, and you see how the seasons of um, the weather actually can correspond to some of the seasons we go through in life, um, and it, it really that. paints a picture of hope, hope in all times, um, the ups, the downs, you know, all the things we experience as humans, it paints a beautiful kaleidoscope during that first act. That sounds brilliant. So, Juliana, uh, Brian and I are both pastors, mm-hmm. and uh, both big CS. Lewis fans. Can, can you tell us a little bit why 
why the great divorce why something based on like i love the great divorce that was a really meaningful book for me but why why did you choose that as sort of a, a jumping off point yeah so the great divorce i think for me as well was really eye opening um cs lewis has such an incredible way of taking extremely dense concepts um and kind of creating a story that you can understand. And I think the line that really captures me from The Great Divorce is the fact that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Mm. Um, And that idea fascinates me because Mm. you often hear people saying, how could God send people to hell? How could he do that um, to people that he loves? You know, why do we have heaven? Why do we have hell? And I think Lewis's point is that hell is not a place that God kind of throws people away and throws them into torment but rather hell is kind of the logical end to our selfish hearts, Mm. um, where we kind of follow our selfishness to its logical conclusion, which is a place without God, where Mm. God um, is is totally removed and where we are fully gratifying um, the desire of the flesh. And that's kind of the picture that's painted in The Great Divorce. Um, But then Lewis doesn't stop there. He goes, but there is a way to to know eternal life. And so he kind of walks through... um, this vision of what it could look like to move through the valley, um, which is this kind of this passageway up a mountain. And you see a lot of these people from Greytown that are trying to move up this mountain, mm. um, but they are not able to climb all the way up to heaven because at some point each one of them chooses their own selfish desire above God. And so I just find that very telling of my own heart yep. to know that in so many ways, God is standing there at the door knocking and extending his arms to us, but we choose ourselves instead, um, and that that is how we end up in the most miserable of situations. It's not that God is pushing these things on us, but more that we're choosing that direction, whether we recognize that in ourselves or not. Um, but then the good news is that heaven is real, and I love how C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says that yeah. heaven is the realest reality. It's where you are your truest self, um, and the few people that decide to lay down their selfish desires and pursue God, um, they end up in this most incredible reality of heaven where everything is more true and more real and more beautiful um, than anything they could have possibly imagined. Um, and so I feel like that leaves such a good taste in your mouth of saying, hey, that is what I want. That is worth laying down my selfish pursuits. It's worth giving up everything to pursue that. That's great. That sounds fascinating. Uh, Juliana, just to close this out, uh, we, we want people to come to your performance. So give us again the time, the cost, the location, and most importantly, where people can go to get tickets. Yeah, so the performance is this weekend. It's February 16th. It's at 7 p.m. at the Hemans in Elgin. And you can get tickets at ballet58.org. Ballet is B-A-L-L-E-T and numbers 58.org. Well, Juliana Slager, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Uh, we wish great success for the, uh, the ballet this week and yeah. everything you do with Ballet 5.8. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great night. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I'm Brian Fromm along with Ian Simpkins. Again, this is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. I like this music. Yeah, it's peaceful. It's nice. Yeah. Sometimes I think they get the, the music a little too casual for us here because it like makes me just want to fall asleep a little bit and just kind of... I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. It's very zen. 
because that's what our show is. Obviously. The Common Zen. The Common Zen. <laughs> that's, that's pretty catchy. That's what we are. So now I'm going to start yelling at all of you just to kind of counterbalance. Smart. So. Good idea. Again, this is The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. You can follow us online at 1160hope.com. Find old shows there. Uh, or you can uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Also on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles there. We have pictures, all sorts of fun stuff for you to interact with. We'd love to get to know you and continue the conversation there. Well, Ian, you and I are both married. It's true. I've been married 19 years. How about yourself? Pretty close. Uh, two and a half. <laughs> Pretty S- close. Similar length of time. <laughs> Is this right? I go, my 19 years has felt like two and a half. Yeah, I was it's trying to been... tee you up. Or right, is man, that where you go, my two and a half has felt no, like 19? No, 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 no. I was trying to tee you up for a compliment. Yeah, you and I <laughs> you and I got married at very different stages of life. I got sure. married when I was uh, 22 years old. Right. And you were what? Young 30s? Mid-30s? This requires some backwards math. Some backwards sure. math. 32, I guess. Right, so yeah, a decade later then. Yeah, so uh, we, we are different stages of marriage, different stages with our kids, um, but but marriage, whether you are two and a half years in or 19 years in, and something that we don't often teach about in churches or on TV or whatever, is that marriage can be hard. Yeah, Marriage can be difficult. It, it's, uh, it's a day in and day out uh, ups and downs of living with another person right. and being with another person. I feel like my wife right now is like shaking her head violently. <laughs> She's standing on the yes. couch shouting amen. <laughs> I've never loved this show more. Uh, with that in mind, came across a story that is titled this, Staying Married is Not Always About Staying in Love. Hmm. In fact, it doesn't use the word always. It says staying married is not about staying in love. Uh, and you can find this at, at desiringgod.org. It says the chasm between biblical vision of marriage and the human vision is and has always been gargantuan. Some, like our own culture, have such low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes towards marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. So your thoughts on what does our culture say about marriage, but I'm more interested in what is the Bible, what is the kind of the Christian worldview of marriage? You know, and I can't pass this up, and I think I did this a couple weeks ago, even just this phrase, biblical marriage, I think we have to be really careful, particularly as pastors, when we talk about, oh, just uh, we want a biblical marriage. Like, New, we'll go New Testament. Well, okay. <laughs> even, even that gets tricky, though, right? Even that's not cut and dry. You have yeah. you know, Paul and Jesus, who are the predominant voices of the New Testament, uh, likely neither of which were married. So yeah. like, you know, when we talk about oh, biblical marriage, you're like, which one? Which <laughs> marriage in particular are we looking after? And, uh, and again, I don't know. Sometimes articles like this, um, I think the, the, the thesis, the central... Uh, big idea is is spot on to 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 elevate um, what it is that we're talking about when we talk about marriage. Yeah. The other part of my brain goes to though I know plenty of people who have no interest in the Bible or Jesus or spirituality, but are completely committed in their marriage. Absolutely. I sometimes am a little skittish at this like blanketed juxtaposition, like oh, there's biblical committed marriage, and then there's like all these heathens yep. who yeah, they're just jumping from spouse to spouse and they don't care about you know yep. powering through the difficulties. I'm like I know. A a bunch of people who are, they're not flipping with their marriage at all. And, and I know a bunch of Christians who are flipping with their exactly, marriage. That's exactly right. And they could answer all the right questions. Yep. Um, but you're exactly right. So, you know, that's sort of my caveat, I guess, whenever speaking in, in broad brushstrokes. Great. But I, I love that it, you know, the, the story begins at uh, Genesis. And I think there's a lot that can be inferred um, looking at Genesis. But one of the things that um, I think is really important when he talks about um, the two becoming one, not the halves becoming whole, I like it. right? So, like, it 
is it isn't this idea like oh you're incomplete until you become married until that point you're just in a waiting room i think that's so dangerous and toxic mm. particularly as you mentioned as someone who didn't get married until his 30s yep. i heard so much bad theology about what marriage was that even though i myself wasn't married it it made me wonder is that even a good idea then if that if 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 this thing is what completes me then you know by deduction i guess i'm i'm incomplete and mm. probably not useful to the kingdom until I accomplish this thing. And if you're listening and you're single for whatever reason, like, please hear, like you, you are fully and completely who Jesus made you to be, whether or not there's a ring on your finger, whether yeah. or not you've signed a document. I can't yeah. imagine churches actually came out and said that. So how did you pick that up? What were more of the subtle messages that gave you that feel? Well, I think a lot of times when we talk about, um, I mean, one is at weddings, you know, mm-hmm. how, how often are single people even addressed in wedding ceremonies next to mm-hmm. never, yeah. um, a lot of times if you do a relationship series or a marriage series, there's very little that's actually spoken to the single person at all. And we assume, you know, we use we assume everyone's got a spouse or everyone's got kids or, you know, and like yeah. that's where I'm at today. But I, I man, there's a there's a long, a long history of times. It's usually not by like overt um, direct statements. It's usually the absence of addressing the, the elephant in the room that like those of us felt like, oh, maybe we don't matter to this community. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, so back, we got a little tangent there. So uh, what do you think leads to these committed marriages that we talked about being both biblical? You know, Jesus, uh, I like in this in this article, it very bluntly says, uh, Christ will never leave his wife, yeah. being the church. Uh, but we always read, you know, Paul's words about mutual submission and right. love your wife as Christ loved the church. Um I guess the question is, how does this happen? How do you grow this in your marriage? Well, I think I think he says it well. He starts by saying, you know, the becoming one flesh is God's doing. It's the the main character at any wedding ceremony isn't the bride, the groom, or even the pastor. It's mm. God. And I think when you start with that position, that this is not just some legal exchange. It's this like sacred, yeah, um, this the sacred thing that we are all you know witnesses of. I think when you start with that point, that I man, it is God who makes us one flesh. That is a starting point that I think is really helpful when thinking through, you know, difficult seasons of life. But if you see it as simply you two people trying to muster up enough energy and grit to stick it out to stay together, yeah, uh, I think that's a much a much harder place to start with, um, rather than God being at the center of what it is that you call marriage. You know, and sometimes Christians I think can get this feeling like you're never supposed to struggle in your marriage, right? And so you, there's like this shame and this guilt that says, oh my gosh, I don't like. I'm not waking up in like the honeymoon phase at all times and, you know, just right. thinking about my wife at all moments and this and that. And instead, like, wow, there's a little bit of a grind sometimes when right. kids and money and all this stuff gets involved and we don't see everything the same. Uh, that's why we keep telling you on the show, there's nothing wrong with counseling. Right. Like, go get help. Like, if your car wasn't working, you'd go to the mechanic. If your leg hurt, you'd go to the doctor. Go go to counseling before your car breaks down. Absolutely. I think you mixed the metaphors there. <laughs> <laughs> Get buy a new car is what I'm saying. <laughs> but go to counseling on the front end, like you said, before it is crisis counseling. Yeah. Uh, before you're on the edge of leaving your spouse or on divorce. But I also think just going into marriage, and this sounds like not romantic, but just having this, like the the fact of getting out of it is just not really an option. Yeah. I'm going to do the work to stay in here, and obviously things happen, and there are things that we'll dis- totally. we could discuss. But generally speaking. Just going, you know, that's not an out, that's not an outlet. So I'm going to work on this marriage, and we're going to do the work we need to do. Well, even that that word uh, one, the one flesh yeah. in Genesis, is the word hakad, which was used in the Shema to describe 
the Trinitarian God. Oh, uh, God, you are one. You are Hakaz. So this two becoming one isn't just, okay, now you live at the same address and now you share similar ho- you know, hobbies and uh, you have the same weekend planned. It's like, man, take a cue from the Trinity, which is this constant uh, cycle of like sacrifice and love and mercy over and over. There's this perichoresis, this dance of the divine, right? Mm. Is a really critical part to living out. Because like you said, in the movies, often the two extremes are depicted, right? Like yes. mad, passionate love or like absolute like yeah. heartache and fight. You know, what, what is difficult is the common space, yeah. the space that I think no one's making movies about. That's where you, you get to live out like faithful um, trust and forgiveness and service to each other. And so often that's not depicted or glorified in any context. And so when people get there, they think, well, this isn't what I signed up for. Right, like, that's, right. That's the meat of the whole thing. And I think that's really important to dive in. I like that. The, the, the part where the vast majority of us live, the vast majority of our days is what is not being talked about in yeah. movies or, right. or whatever else. Well, we want our marriages to, what, to do well as pastors. We want to see marriages flourish. We do enjoy being pastoral. And coming up next, we're going to continue that as we talk about this concept of what happens when God seems silent. When God seems silent in your life, how do you deal with that? That's what we're going to talk about next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. See, this is the music that gets me ready to do radio. Like, ah, oh, let's go. Run through a wall. Jeez, Louise. It has the opposite effect on me. You like the kind of the more mellow, the... Uh... I'm just a chill dude, man. Just chill. I think you're just missing that up with being tired. <laughs> is that what it is? Tired and chill you're just, are definitely uh, definitely related. They are they are very closely tied to one another. Well, again, you can find old shows of ours online at 1160hope.com. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can also subscribe to our podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. Well, Ian, we always tell people, you and I are both pastors. I'm the Lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois, and you are the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church in uh, Naperville, Illinois. God, I keep getting that right. I'm glad. I keep going. You say that we always tell people that. I don't always tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> to- like, oh, we're always telling people, strangers, people walking on the street, I'm a pastor. Hey, nah. guess what I do? That's right. Guess what I do? Well, the reason I bring that up is because this next story that we want to talk about off the Desiring God website uh, is... Very pastoral, and it's something that you and I have probably felt, but it's also something that as pastors we hear from people. And it's just titled this, Waiting When God Seems Silent. Yeah. Uh, what do we do in those seasons, like David in the Psalms, where we are crying out to God, where life just feels like it is just out of control, uh, where, where we are in despair, and we're just longing to hear from God, and he stays silent, yeah. or at least we perceive him being silent. What do we do with that? Yeah, I think first and foremost, to anyone who's feeling right now like God is silent, like that is okay. You're in good company. People usually seem pretty shocked, particularly when they hear pastors talk about when they feel that God is silent. Like they assume that we just have this bat phone direct line to God. (laughs) I mean, there's never any valley season for us. Yes, That could not be further from the truth. And the thing that I find a lot of comfort in is that there have been juggernauts of the faith, both modern and ancient, who have experienced, you know, what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, Mm. right? Like, I think Sinclair Ferguson talks about this, this idea of, uh, of the, the spiritual desertion, like this, this wasteland season. And if we're honest, we've all felt that whether you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, or you're like brand new to even just figuring this whole thing out like that. I think 
it has to start first with recognizing, being honest about those feelings, that, that sense. Even, even Mother Teresa, you know, they found some journals of hers years after she passed where it was um, almost a decade of feeling like God was silent. You're wow. like, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, who's like a punchline of holiness, of like yeah. closeness to God, right? You know, she writes really honestly, like, God, are you even there? Can you even hear me? You know, and you, you look at the Psalms, and a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, mm. and you have books like Lamentations and Jeremiah and Job, and there's there's a number of stories of, of men and women throughout the Scripture who, who don't, they don't just seem to only feel like God is silent, but they're upset about it. So that's the other thing that I think is really um, worth articulating is that it's not just, okay, I feel like God is quiet, but I'm sure he's teaching me something, so I just got to, like, pull myself up my bootstraps and be okay. I think to allow yourself the grief of feeling like God's not responding to the cries of your heart. Like, often when we feel God is silent, it's because we're we're wanting answers. We're wanting him to do something in our life, and when we feel like it's our prayers are hitting a ceiling, that can be really frustrating. Like own, own that too, um, mm. which I think is really important. But I also, I think it's, it's worth noting that often it's the desert seasons that force our roots to go down really deep. You know, mm. it's, it's in time of flourishing that everyone's happy and everyone's skipping and everyone's blowing yeah. bubbles and, you know, listening to happy music. It's, I think it's often in the seasons where we feel like God is silent or God is distant that like our roots are forced to go down deep and we see like what we're really made of. And, Again, I wouldn't wish those seasons on anybody, no. but I could look back on my life and think, man, that's when I really, like, God clarified who he is and who I am in light of that because all the distractions have been stripped away. Like, it forced me to, like, lean in rather than retreat. And yeah. I think, man, those those seasons are a great opportunity to do that. And And feeling the ability to cry out to God, to yell at God, to be angry. I think a lot of times we feel like, oh, that's not allowed. Yeah, right. We're not allowed to do that. Like, our God's big enough. If you're in that kind of season, I'd encourage you to go into the Psalms and read how David wrote. Right. Like, where are you, God? <laughs> uh, and and David, but but he kept pressing in, and right. he kept going. Um, so I think understanding that God's big enough to handle our anger, our frustration, our sadness, our brokenness, I think one of the problems with modern-day evangelicalism is this desire, this need to always have to pretend that we're happy. Yeah. And, man, a lot of times we don't feel happy. And that's, like you said, Lamentations and the Book of Psalms right. and all this. The Bible never tells us you're always going to be happy. And uh, so I think that's important is to recognize that we can cry out to God. Yep. We can pour our souls out to God, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, I would say this— um, Remember that that God has also communicated to us through his word, mm. through the Bible, mm. um, and that even in the midst of, you know, these spiritually dry seasons uh, or this where is God, like we still have access to his word and we could still be diving in uh, and chewing on it and learning, not just learning, but connecting with God there yep. uh, that oftentimes we'll ignore in our darkest times when probably the way you talk about roots, we probably need to be in the word more yeah, right, uh, when right. our life feels like it's crumbling around us. Well, and I think it's it's an important distinction, too, that silence is not the same as quiet. Mm. I, think, I think sometimes God is quiet, but our lives are so filled with noise, right. or we're only seeking God in the noisy spaces, right? I think of uh, Elijah in First Kings, right, where he retreats after this massive spiritual victory, uh, to a mountain, uh, to a cave, and it says that God wasn't in this earthquake and this fire and this wind, like these really dramatic expressions. He was actually, he was in the still, small voice. Yep. The, the Hebrew word there is like this really enigmatic, beautiful word that means the sound of sheer silence. Like, mm. I think, at least in my own life, I'll speak to myself here, so often I my life is filled with so much noise that if I'm really honest, I'm like, God, it, even if God was whispering, I wouldn't be able to hear him 
because I've distracted myself with so many other things. And I think the other thing that's important too is like what what is done to us in the waiting. There is there's work that's done in us when we wait. And this this uh, story includes a couple of passages that I think are are brilliant. Psalm twenty eight one to you, O Lord, I I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, lest you be silent to me. I become like those who go down to the pit. Psalm eighty three one, O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still. Job thirty twenty, I cry out to you for help. You do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. And this idea of in the waiting, don't retreat, but cry out. Yeah. That, God, that God would rather us yell at him than to leave him alone. Like that That to me is such a, like even think about your own kids. Yep. Like I would much rather my kid go toe-to-toe with me than to run away from home. Yeah. And I think if God's a good father, that even when it feels like we're waiting, and maybe we really are, to lean in rather than run away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that God can handle it. And that scripture is filled with stories of men and women doing just that. Yep. What is that if not an invitation to do the same? Yep. To say, hey, we included this in the book, that you don't need to be afraid <laughs> yeah. of, of doubt and fear and confusion and heartache. Like, bring that to God even when you're not totally sure he's listening. Yep. Like, that is such an invitation, I think, to, to cry out in every season. Yeah, and I love the, the passage out of the book of Psalms that says God is close to the brokenhearted. Right. Like, it is oftentimes at rock bottom uh, where God meets with us most deeply. And then I think if you keep hearing the phrase you and I keep using, it's like in those moments, you can either run away or you can lean in. And and our encouragement for you is to lean in. Yep, absolutely. I think Andrew Murray's book, Waiting on God, is actually a great resource for that. Mm. It's, it's, uh, It's helped me kind of have eyes to see, okay, what could God be forming in me or chipping away in me? in this season of waiting, asking that question, even in the midst of heartache, like, okay, what is it that God wants to do in and through me as a result of this? Yes. Which is hard to do because I often go to, why isn't he listening or why isn't he responding yeah. and learning to grow in maternity, maturity to say, okay, what, what might he be doing beneath the surface in me that needs to happen in this yeah. way? So it's in the, in the good times and the bad that we could be growing in our faith, understanding more about God. Uh, so hear from us uh, that we're preaching to ourselves too in those moments, lean in. Well, this is The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up next, we're going to ask the question, is religious freedom for everyone? That's the question on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by Ian Simpkins on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Anything's beautiful in Chicago, right? As long as it's not a polar <laughs> vortex or as like our bar is really low. inside, right? Yes. Beautiful from the, inside. The bar is really low. Well, it's gray, but it's not minus 80, so right, we're, we're good right. to go. We're good to go. Uh, well, you may have seen the story this past week um, that brings into question this concept of religious freedom. Out of the New York Times tells the story uh, about uh, a man by the name of Dominique Hakim. He was sentenced to death in Alabama, and late on Thursday, uh, he, sent, um, he was sent a message by the Supreme Court 
that they ruled five to four against his ability to have uh, his iman present, uh, even though that there are Christian ministers and chaplains available uh, at the death row. Um, at the maximum security prison. And this got uh, a lot of people going about, well, like, wasn't it his religious freedom that wasn't being served here? Uh, And it raises all sorts of questions, not just to this specific story, but in general, are we good with religious freedom for all religions or is religious freedom just for the one that we want it to be for? Well, the story later says, writing for the dissenters, Justice Elena Kagan called the majority's decision profoundly wrong. Here's what she writes. Under that policy, a Christian prisoner may have a minister of his own faith accompany him into the execution chamber to say his last rites. But if an inmate practices a different religion, whether Islam, Judaism, or any other, he may not die with the minister of his own faith by his side. That treatment goes against the Establishment Clause's core principle of denominational neutrality. Mm. And I think that's a really, really profoundly important point. Uh, If we're going to be about religious freedom— uh, it needs to also then include, I think, a Muslim man requesting an imam. Yes. And there's all sorts of other articles and stories that I've read or I've heard alluded to about, you know, he just he just simply didn't apply for one early enough, and that was some that was somehow a stumbling block to actually getting one there on time. But there was there was uh, an imam president that watched from behind glass um, as he died, and I think that what a what a what an insane conversation and it seems like both sides have gotten louder yelling that the other is wrong for holding their position but the the idea of um really most prisons having an infrastructure in place where you know christian priests would already be yep. uh, trained to to be able to give the last rites and that somebody else would have to you know be on their game to apply for one in time i guess to have access i realize that there's some security concerns there right. um and and maybe that's uh, also above my pay grade but this idea of Religious freedom for all religions, um, particularly in a case like this, for last right seems really, really important. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I get timing issues, I suppose. That's why it's it's off of this. It's less about this particular story. As uh, I've had this conversation with a lot of friends, you know, people who get on Facebook, Christians, and who are like, religious freedom, you know, for the baker, religious freedom for this guy, religious freedom. And, uh, you know, we, I remember talking to the folks on the family lady a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the freedom to bring Bibles in. And I am like, I'm huge on that. I, I want religious freedom uh, as promised on the Constitution. But we got to be honest that it's not just Christian religious freedom. Right. Uh, so we've got to be good with religious freedom as the court sees fit across the board. And I'm not sure we always are. Like, mm. uh, to be honest with you, if we truly believe in religious freedom, then it's the Christians who should be standing up for the Muslims' religious freedom, right, uh, right. for the Buddhist religious freedom, right. for the religious freedom of Judaism, all of that, because we realize that they're interconnected. Yeah, and I think it's not just about the rights of people in certain legal situations, but um, like that's a that's a twenty four seven kind of situation. I, I read a couple of days ago that there was a, a Texas a Texas mosque that was destroyed. And uh, mm. a bunch of local Jewish leaders gave the, their Muslim neighbors the keys to their synagogue so they continue worshiping. And I remember like reading that story, thinking, "Yeah, that's right. That's yes. what it's about." These these two groups are saying we don't we don't agree on a whole lot, um, but this this tragedy is our issue as well because we're neighbors because we're in this together. This both of our holy books talk about loving your neighbor, and and so no nobody was forcing these Jewish leaders to hand over the keys. They just, they were, they were compelled based on the faith that they ascribed to like, man, Mm. uh, uh, some wrong was done to you. And even though we don't agree, we're not quote unquote in the same tribe, 
um, that's an affront to an image bearer of God. And so we're going to put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to quite literally give you the keys to our space, our sacred space, so that you can continue worshiping. Um, I just, man, there's something really beautiful about, like, that kind of love and service to one another that transcends political lines and religious lines. And I think, you know, that's a story that's all the way from Texas that, you know, resonated with me up here in Chicago. I think there's something to that. There is, and... It sounds like love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And uh, as opposed to just love your tribe as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, like, I just think it's, I'm, you know, we we, sp- we we bang the drum of religious freedom so often. Like, I, Christians want the government out of our religion. Yeah. Muslims want the government out of their religion. Uh, Judaism, they want the government out of the religion. Like, I feel like there's a common ground there mm-hmm. that we're going, mm-hmm. hey, let's let's push forward on this. And, and you you have my back. I'll have your back. Even though we're totally different, we'll yeah, disagree right. on a lot of stuff, but let's have that conversation. But the one thing we can agree on is that uh, that the same freedoms I'm hoping for my religion, I'm hoping for you as well, because right. this isn't a religious issue. This is a, this is what our country's founded on, right? This is a constitutional issue. And I think it has to go beyond hoping. I think it's one thing to say, man, I hope I hope religious freedom and right for you, but um, I'm not actually going to advocate for it. That's I'm not going to actually stand up for you. Like, I think, I don't know. Depending on what circles you find yourself in, sometimes it's so easy to get wrapped up in like fighting for your own tribe's rights, which I'm not saying don't do. do. It. Yes. I mean, I'm sometimes saying don't do it, but that it's it's easy to get a little myopic that we're only fighting uh, for our rights. And there is sometimes I think this uh, this perpetuated myth that as as Christians, we're you know we're all, the world's always at war yep. with us, and I think sometimes that looks differently than the way it's been perpetuated. But are we advocating for the religious rights uh, of of the people, you know, in our own neighborhoods. And and I'm not saying, you know, some, let's say some guy, you know, starts his own religion that just right. wants to inflict pain on other people. I'm not saying advocate for those rights at all, but to have someone's, um, like holy man or a priest be with them in their last moments seems like something that as Christ followers, in which case we're often the majority to stand up and be a voice, uh, for those that don't have a voice or don't have any leverage in those circumstances to say, Hey, um, we still disagree profoundly uh, on a number of issues, um, but I'm going to I'm going to stand up for his rights in this regard because that's that's the right thing to do. Yeah, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor around this uh, in her dissent uh, said that the majority was undermining the Constitution's quote foundational principles of religious tolerance, and in doing so, she said the court was sending a message to members of minority religions in our country that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. And here's the scary part: like for Christians, if we're just going to be just self-aware here, yeah. We might be the majority religion now. Doesn't mean we will be a generation from now that's or true. two generations from now. And we're that's gonna, true. we're gonna want. We don't want this to be religious tolerance just for the majority. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's a good that's a good caution, man. Well, this is a uh, religious freedom is not. This will not be the last time we'll tackle this one. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, men's roles, women's roles, toxic masculinity. We're going to jump back into that one. That's on the common good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois. Joined again by my co-host, Ian Simpkins. Ian is the uh, teaching pastor at Community Christian Church in Naperville, Illinois. Well, Ian, we wanted to talk a little bit. Remember uh, a week ago or so, we talked about that uh, Gillette ad about toxic masculinity that was flying all over the Internet. Uh, And you and I had some, some disagreements, some agreements about it, what was good, what wasn't. 
uh, but it was getting at an issue within our culture of what is ge- what role does gender play? What is a man in our culture in this day and age and all of this? Yeah. Uh, on the website Desiring God, they weighed in, and you know it's pretty conservative, and we, they've got a certain bent. They weighed in uh, with an article entitled "Play the Man You Are," and it is asking the question of uh, what role does gender play in our uh, in our uh, culture now? Uh, what's it mean to be a man? What's it mean to be a, a woman? Uh, and I'm curious, just your uh, <laughs> how you're doing with this one. Well, the title is Play the Man You Are, and the subtitle is Will Effeminacy Keep Anyone from Heaven? And so it's a long it's a long story. It's a long article. It goes on to unpack uh, a number of different biblical examples of um, different types of uh, gender expressions and this one particular author's uh, interpretation of them. And there's a couple of places where I think it goes just a little off the rails, and then the more that I read, the more, um, A, confused I am by what he's trying to get at, be uh, a little frustrated by sort of the the myopic perspective of what in his mind um, biblical godly masculinity looks like, and I've I've heard this particular version of uh, this kind of ethos a, a number of times in a number of different places, but never um, in this particular sense. And it kind of goes on to talk about um, men who like struggle with womanly behavior, and in a number of places in this article. Uh, is pretty demeaning of men expressing any of that kind of womanly behavior. Like mm. if that's in any way, you know, it's talking about um, acting womanly is to act cowardly in battle or uh, gentle in touch or care, um, which, by the way, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, not not a feminine <laughs> virtue, just, just so that we're clear. And I, I think what's frustrating to me, and I think I can kind of pick up a little bit of what he's going after, but it misses the mark in a massive way because it completely, one, disregards um, any of the feminine qualities it seems to be bashing in the person of God himself. Mm. There's, I mean, there's a number of places in Scripture that talk about, like a, like a mother hen longing to gather his chicks or her chicks. Like, there's, we, we've created this, like, engendered God that I think is so often this, you know, big bearded Zeus muscle man in the sky, mm. and we assume that all of our depictions of masculinity need to look like that, and um, and we sort of seem to downplay in any of the uh, quote unquote um, softer traits of this this God that we we say all the time that we're made in the image and likeness of. Mm-hmm. And so for me, this is way deeper than should men wear skinny jeans or you know <laughs> like what's the tone of their the voice answer to that is like? no by the way. But yes, <laughs> but if you want to like go, your theology is not threatened by wearing skinny jeans yes. or if you happen to have a higher pitched voice like this article seems to kind of go after literally one one of the one of the uh the category headings is the gay vibe and mm. i think and just at first blush knowing friends and family members of of my own that like would be deeply hurt even just by th- that as a as a section heading mm. is like so frustratingly reductionistic like oh i can I can pick someone out based on the the gay vibe they give off to me is is so unhelpful, both in this conversation specifically, but like in in an evangelistic sense, which I think they ultimately like they want people to know and follow Christ. I think right. that's their goal. Oh, absolutely. And if I'm if I'm somebody who's struggling or wrestling, and I you know I read something like this, if this is in any way like the next the next heading is the sin of softness, mm. which is particularly in light of the Gillette commercial, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think. Man, if if we're in even even subtly implying to men that softness is a sin to run from, mm. uh, we've made a grave mistake. Yeah. And I, I th- I'm not saying there isn't times to be strong, 
to stand up, but but to in any way communicate like oh softness is yeah, that's that's um, we need to leave that to the women is is so frustratingly misguided to me, and I think often perpetuates the kind of masculinity that the commercial was going after. So uh, so let's move this ball forward a little bit this way. Um, because I think what this article is trying to get at is they say in the second paragraph, right? Some teachers can no longer say boys and girls in the classrooms and some school districts, young men can go in the girls locker rooms. You know, it talks about an actress who's get, who just said they're going to raise their daughter with a genderless approach, uh, this kind of stuff. And it says into this genderless, this gender confusion of our day, uh, we need to give pictures of healthy expressions of masculinity. And I think we would agree with that. I think you're quibbling with the, or not just quibbling, you're having a hard time with their picture of masculinity yeah. and what isn't masculine. So uh, if you were writing this article, <laughs> what are the picture? What is a, what is a picture of bi- uh, biblical masculinity, if you will, look like? Because we've all gone to those conferences, right? The Act Like a Man conference or the uh, the other things. There seems to be a real craving within our culture of, what does it mean to be a man? Yeah, not just in Christianity, but even in um, the Gillette ad. It's trying to say there's a lot of gender confusion. So, really, what does it mean to be a man? Is it still the guy on the horse smoking a cigarette? Right? Yeah, right. Is it uh, the guy who works and then comes home and everyone else serves him? Is it something different? And I think our our culture is confused in the church and outside the church of what are we actually trying to tell boys to become? What are men? What's a man look like? In our culture, yeah, I think that's a failing question from the beginning. To, mm. to try and create a, a one-dimensional version of what a man is is already the wrong question, in my opinion. And I think again, the guy that wrote this article is clearly a trillion times smarter than me. It's a really well-written article. It's scholarly. <laughs> I just disagree with a lot of it. But I think of like you know, out of the Houston Chronicle, like may, maybe we should be less concerned about men that are acting effeminate and more concerned about men who are abusing systems of power and authority. Mm. In the local church, Christ's bride. Like, I would love to see more outcry about what are, what are what are these aggressive versions of masculinity doing to harm and abuse others versus, oh, I think that this person be- behaving in this way or listening to this music or dressing in this is, oh, I think that, I mean, literally the subheading of like, is, this might be damaging people's salvation, their ability to get into heaven. You know what, you know what I think might actually be threatening <laughs> that is like deep, dark, systemic patterns of abuse and belittlement, like I think, of the most vulnerable among us. Like uh-huh. that, to me, um, a man uh, can be both strong and also gentle, can love sports and art, can call people to courage and vision, and also, like, weep with his wife and his child. Like, I think um, all, all and every of those mm-hmm. need to be included. And for us to try to create these these caricatures, I think, is part of the problem, because then you have uh, little Christian boys that grow up because maybe they don't work in a steel mill the way that their dad did, and they wonder, maybe I'm just not as much of a man because I, I love dance or I love painting, yep. and I, I'm not good at either of those things, so I'm not speaking out of personal experience. I just think, man, can can we be the kinds of leaders and the kind of church that speak life and identity into the men that uh, maybe even look differently and act differently than we do? That's good. Uh, not to wrap things up in a bow, but I felt like, the the I feel like the answer to what does a biblical man look like has to be the old Sunday school answer. The the answer is always Jesus. Sure. And uh, <laughs> you know I only bring that up to say Jesus cried and Jesus drove out people from the temple and so on and so forth. Um, it's do you feel this pressure having sons now? 
Yeah, I do. I, and I think that that's something that I want to, I know that I want to, I'll have to spend the rest of my life growing into and getting better at, but uh, offering them a full spectrum depiction of um, who God is, who Jesus is, and allowing them um, to step fully into that, knowing that, yeah, there are times to be strong, and there are certainly times to walk away, times to weep with those who weep, to celebrate with those who celebrate, and um, and to and to do my very best to not force them into some kind of box based on my likely limited understanding of what that's supposed to look like. Mm. It's interesting. I have one son of my three kids, and you know, I long for him to to understand what a man's supposed to do. So, hey, bud, open the door for your mom. Do this kind of stuff. Yes, totally. But I also know that of my three children, my son is the most cuddly and the most emotional. Mm. And I'm like, I try to build into that all that totally. I can because. Of his mother and I, I'm the most cuddly and yeah, the most right. emotional. <laughs> right, it's right. like the two most emotional and touchy-feely guys in our house are the two boys, mm. or the two men, not mm. of, of the five of us. And I want him to understand that's fine. That's good. Not just fine. That's who God made you. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, but there are other things that it means to be a man that I want to talk to you about. Yes. But I think totally. what you're pointing out at this article is maybe they're maybe they're missing the mark on where they're focusing mm. on some of this stuff. So this is not the last time we'll talk about this, I'm sure. It pops up because I think our culture... Our church culture is really confused about this, so we want to continue wrestling with it. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by Ian Simpkins yet again. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Or online, you can find old shows at 1160hope.com. Or you can uh, download or subscribe to our podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. Ian, you and I, we've talked. We've gotten to know each other uh, over this last month or so. And I think you and, you and I both uh, have a deep, enduring love for Christian rock. Yeah. I think it's like our, our childhood. <laughs> and I, my guess is we listen to different Christian rock. But uh, with that in mind, uh, the New Yorker of all places yeah. did a deep dive uh, entitled The Unlikely Endurance of Christian Rock, yep. and kind of mapped that from like the mid-50s till now, yep. Christian Rock has changed and morphed, but it's always been. Yeah, and if you ha- if you have a spare 30 minutes... <laughs> <laughs> it's a long one. <laughs> but I can't encourage you enough, if you're even remotely into Christian music and the history of it, uh, The Unlikely Endurance of Christian Rock, it is a brilliant deep dive into the history and the, the twists and turns. And like I kind of, you know, my introduction to music in general was like The Who... Led Zeppelin, mm. Fleetwood Mac, and then about the same time that I was starting to kind of take my faith seriously, and I say kind of in air quotes because I, I wasn't really yet, but I was yeah. discovering uh, that there actually were Christians making music that I wanted to listen to, and it, you know, based on how old I am, it started with like the DC Talk, yeah. Audio Adrenaline, but then I, I really fell in love with punk rock for a long time, so I started finding like punk artists like like Goaty Hook and Slick Shoes and Dogwood and Craig's Brother, all these tooth and nail artist and that that kind of morphed into into metal and I was listening to like death metal for a Christian death metal for a long time and that morphed into screamo and indie and folk and all this other weird stuff but it it became almost this obsession like wow okay I know talented Christians who are also musicians I refuse to believe that the only Christian music that's being written and recorded is like the stuff I'm hearing on Sunday mornings. Mm. And like that just took me down this rabbit trail to the point where in a lot of ways that kind of became part of my identity. I started playing in um in different bands. They weren't all Christian, but yeah. like Cornerstone Music Festival in Bushnell, Illinois. Mm-hmm. I was living in Detroit and we were taking 
a caravan, you know, all nine hours to get to Bushnell and just like listen and celebrate for a whole week with a bunch of other like, you know, muddy, sweaty hippies. And the thing that I loved about Cornerstone is that it was it was home to a whole bunch of different genres. And it was kind of there that my eyes were open to like, holy cow, there are Christians that are making good art in the world. Yeah, that. I mean, there was some bad art, too. Don't get me wrong. Nope. But uh, it was like this whole universe opened up to me that, like, man, you can be a Christ follower and still be a really talented artist and have, like, incredible skill and have something to say, even if it doesn't sound like a worship song. Mm. And I just found that particular sentiment so fascinating and so needed. And so it's interesting. The end of the story talks about how, how Christian music has morphed and twist and turned throughout the decades and in some ways, you can't even differentiate it from pop music. Mm-hmm. And the author says that may be a good thing, and that might not be. Yeah. Like maybe that's maybe that's part of the issue is that Christian music now, in a lot of ways, just sounds like everything else. Even right. though, you know, in some cases, it's excellent. Ha- has it lost some of its bite mm-hmm. for what launched it into you know the mainstream in the fifties and sixties? Because it was it was saying something. You yeah. know, I I may surprise you throughout high school and early in the college. Uh, uh, kind of like Cornerstone out here on the East Coast or something was called the Creation Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went like four times, five times, and I'm not a hippie. Uh, That's good. (laughs) But it it was always a blast just not to be there with friends and stuff. But also, you know, uh, I was more a main stage guy. So you get the newsboys were there every year. Uh, Striper, you know, <laughs> then the Newsboys, a different iteration of them. <laughs> and yep, then yep, yep. Uh, you, and, you and I were just, we were joking before this, like, what's our top five Christian bands? And we both went Petra. <laughs> Petra's got to be in the top five. Even if you don't like them, you got to put yeah. them there. <laughs> yes. You get a little Striper to hell with the devil and That's you're, right. you're good to go. But what makes this article interesting is that Christian music looks completely different, but it's still indoors. Like, why do you think, and you, you touched on this, but you feel much more deeply about this. Yeah. Why do you think it's endured? Is it, is it this good artistry, but from a certain perspective, what, you know, why does it keep going? Yeah. In my most cynical, I think that the Christian market is one that's easy to market to, but in my most hopeful uh, I think of artists like Lecrae who are saying things. I actually saw him on a uh, on a radio show where, you know, it's not a Christian radio show, but they were talking to Lecrae about, like, man, what you represent is what hip-hop actually used to be, mm. about actually saying something that mattered, and then it, you know, it spun out of control and just became about, you know, gold chains and champagne bottles. There, This non-Christian dude is, like, lifting Lecrae up, saying, man, you're sta- you're talking about justice, and you're, you're talking about... Um, struggle, and you're talking about heartache. You're like, that is what hip hop used to be. Yeah, and and it was the, such a strange juxtaposition for me because here's this squeaky clean hip hop artist on a show that's not squeaky clean, and they're saying you're you're latching onto something. You, what you're saying is resonating. And for me, when I you know I was getting into punk and ska, punk and ska initially was about the marginalized, it's about the people that didn't have a place. You know, so I'm yeah. listening to MXPX and Five Iron Frenzy, and you know some of these artists that like. They were they became an anthem for those of us who felt like we didn't fit, and isn't that a little bit of a rally cry yeah. for the Christian faith? That this idea that like Jesus stands with the marginalized, the oppressed, the people that feel like man, I don't fit this machine, this model. That's what punk was. That's what hip hop was. That's what that's what metal in a lot of ways was and is. And I think uh, Christians at their best when they speak to like something that's soul level and heart yeah. level, and not just sort of surface. You know, I think. You know, anyone can enjoy a good beat or good composition, but if it's all, if it's just simply about like making millions of dollars and living in, man- yep. in mansions, that narrative gets old. But if you're talking about struggle and heartache and valleys and like 
those should be things that Christian artists arguably are the most dialed into yeah. because we see with a different set of lenses. You're, off, you're often talking about that language. If we see through that particular perspective, we should be leading the forefront of artistry, not just in music. Like we, that, that to me is one of the great frustrations of a lot of mainstream Christian music is that of all people, we should have the perspective that's resonating deep in people's bones and we're opting out for a lot of times these sort of cheap Christianese yep. replacements. And, and that gets at something that's really important in this conversation for me is uh, we've talked before about does it need the qualifier Christian music, right, Christian movies. Right. When, when Christian music or Christian movies or even Christian schools are set up, any of these things are set up as a way of protecting us from the big bad world, mm. I think they tend to not serve a purpose and go away, yeah. right? Totally. But when they're uh, serving the purpose that you're talking about of, no, they're going to give me hope and they're going to point me to Jesus and do it in an artistic way that the church needs and yeah. the, the kids and adults are going to resonate with, people who like hip-hop or people who like punk or whatever else, then it's definitely needed, and I think that's why it's endured. Not because it's like, oh, let me protect you from Lady Gaga or whatever, whoever right, else. Right. We're going to sound like her, but we're going to do it in a much more gentle way. <laughs> yeah, right. But instead of like, no, we're going to sing about some like some hope and some deeply Christian things here that are that are going to that have a place, yes. and we're going to inspire you. That's where it fills a void that's so needed. Well, I remember even like reading magazines like HM or Seven Ball, and they'd say, you know, if you like corn, you'll love Pax Two One Seven, and I'm like. Nah, I'm going to listen to corn. But then I think of like my friend Tambor is this brilliant harpist out of Nashville. And like, I think part of her success is that she's speaking things to people of all, all shapes and sizes, all experiences that when you, when you experience it live, it's like, okay, this is transcendent somehow. Even if you don't have the word transcendent, like her artistry creates in, in a lot of ways, these worship spaces in my mind that people, um, experience the divine in a unique way that they don't just sort of living their nine to five at this kind of treble level noise all the time. It's, it's something that resonates. And I think yes. people everywhere are longing for something like that. All right. Total unfair question for you. You get to heaven one day, hopefully. right? <laughs> and God says to you, I will throw you one dream concert. You get to pick one artist, one Christian artist. You get a personal, you get a concert. Who are you choosing? Oh my goodness. That's, you choose un, it. that's unanswerable. We got 20 seconds. You got 20 choose it. seconds. What do I have to choose a genre? Nope. Any genre nope. music of all, of all time. Holy cow. I mean, would it, would it be a cop out to say Phil Kiki? No, that's great. I would love, I would love to see Phil Kiki in heaven. Just, just playing, playing. I think he'll be there. I, I, I think he will too, man. <laughs> that, that would just be a blast for me. Oh, that's good. Uh, well, you're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life coming up next. Uh, we're going to end this show with just some, uh, what do we call it? Internet insanity? Internet insanity. Internet insanity. Some fun stories that we found online to end the show on a light note. This is The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time to end the Tuesday show with some internet insanities. You're not going to say land the plane or... Well, that's 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 worn out, man. It's that's a Monday thing. <laughs> now it's worn out. All right, that's fair. <laughs> Yesterday, I think I used land the plane. I think we used pull the boat into the dock. You keep saying we like I have anything to do with that. Who just brought it up now? That's true. <laughs> Touche. Touche from who just brought it up? Well, the goal of this is to uh, we find stories online that are just crazy and make us laugh. Try to send you home on your from your work day with just some. Some good laughs. I have had some pastors thank me for this particular portion of the show because they say it's really great fodder for sermon illustrations. Awesome. And I don't know 
what kinds of sermons people are writing that these stories are useful, but that makes me happy. Hey, if you're that pastor out there doing that, please just <laughs> say, as I heard on The Common Good Ooh. on AM 1160, let's get a little, you know, we want a little pre- we want a little uh, promo here. That's shameless. Even, it, no, I'm not asking for their offering plates. Okay, I'm just asking for a little fair. promo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You want to go first? Sure. I'd love to. Here we go. It's out of Texas. I honest to God, I feel like there's like four states we keep drawing from. Uh, and Jersey's been one of them. Yes. Um, we haven't seen a lot of Michigan, by the way. So if you find Michigan ones, by all means. Okay. A Houston family said they were charged more than $1,600 for a Domino's pizza order that should have been less than 20 <laughs> I argue even less than that. 20 is already overpaying for Domino's. That is so you can, true. You can get cardboard for free at any dumpster near you. Why, <laughs> why pay $20 when you can get it for free? It's ridiculous. Can you imagine see, like just running through your Did they bills, get their though? money back, though? I mean, it looks like they did, yeah. Okay. Just, they didn't catch the charge uh, right away, so that was part of the problem. So I'm going to England. Of all, when we leave the States, we end up in England. Well, congrats. I hope you have a nice trip. There you go. Here's why we're going. We want to tell you this story. Woman wants to hire someone to make decisions for her for a month. <laughs> we I, all make wrong decisions from time to time, it says. But one woman in the UK feels like she's made so many of them over the last year that she now wants to pay a, quote, enlightened individual individual $2,600 to make decisions on her behalf for a month. Where do I sign? I would do that in a heartbeat. Can we be those enlightened people? <laughs> you feel badly about this lady. She's like, after reportedly losing money by trusting a friend, becoming oh. stranded and penniless in a foreign country, getting mugged and being in a toxic romantic relationship, all in the last 12 months, an anonymous, an anonymous, easy for me to say, <laughs> an anonymous woman in the UK wants to hire somebody to help her make decisions for a month and get her life back on track. I'm in. I mean, who among us hasn't felt that way at some point in their life? I feel like minus the money, we should like we should do this for our producer. Oh, we'll we'll advise Josh for a whole month. Each of us get a day. I think he would go for that. Yeah. Each of us get a day. Yeah, that sounds like a fun. We'll have to record the entire thing and post it online. Josh, your life would be better off, man. I'm telling you. Okay, so uh, speaking of pizza, this one's from Hungary. <laughs> no, all right. <laughs> it says Hungary to women have four kids, pay no more income tax. Hungary's government is greatly increasing financial aid and subsidies for the families with several children, the uh, the country's prime minister said Sunday. So that's that's incentive, right? You have four kids and uh, you pay no more income tax. So maybe we're all going to Hungary, I guess. How many kids do you have? Three? I have three. So would you be willing to... uh... I'll pay the taxes, (laughs) man. (laughs) I'll pay the taxes. fair, Fair enough. Uh, Oregon. This is a like one we read last week. Last week we read one, wasn't it? You could... You can, they name your ex after a, they a beetle or something after your ex and feed it to a meerkat or something. I think it was a cockroach. All right. Yeah. Well, out of Oregon for $20, wildlife images will put your ex's name on a salmon and feed it to a bear. <laughs> Less than one week from Valentine's Day, wildlife images is offering a unique way to get revenge on your, revenge on your ex Valentine. In exchange for a $20 donation, your ex's name will be put on a salmon and served to one of the organization's 1,000 pound bears. What better way to show your ex that they made the right call by breaking up with you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm really going to get you. I put your face That'll on a, show on them. a fish. I'll post this on Facebook to show how much I moved on. <laughs> yeah. All right, Gary. Okay, so this one's out of Washington State. Mass snowball fight involving hundreds of people breaks out in Washington Park after Facebook post, which is a good story. Like, apparently there was this, like, groundswell of, uh, like, social media buzz around having a, a snowball fight, and they mobilized 
hundreds of people. That would be so much fun. It would be. To, like, put on your jacket and hat and then just have a massive snowball fight with a but bunch of strangers. There's probably going to be some people who are way too into that, and it's going to get painful. I'm when sure you- someone shows up, like, in, uh, like, like, they have, like, garb, right? Yep. Like, Renaissance Fair garb or something. Yep. When you read that story, what movie do you think of? Or what, I, I thought of something immediately, a scene in a movie. Is it a uh, Chevy Chase one? It is not. Um, is it a... Oh, it's Elf. It's Elf! Yes. No, uh-oh, yes. we're getting to know each other too well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's totally that scene in Elf where they all jump him and then Will Ferrell's just like... Shoo, shoo, That's shoo, exactly shoo. right. Nailing him. I love that one where he hits the kid <laughs> running from a distance. Of That's course good. you do. All right, I'm going to Ireland. Here we go. Chimps use branch fashioned as a ladder to escape the Belfast Zoo. Brilliant. Zookeepers say a group of chimpanzees used branches weakened by a storm to make a ladder and escape from their enclosure. Video film Saturday by visitors showed several primates scaling a wall and perching atop it with one walking down a path outside the enclosure. Uh, This is two weeks ago. A rare red panda escaped from the same zoo when its electric (laughs) fences failed. The animal was recaptured in the driveway of a nearby house. Two points to this one. Sure. One, probably don't go to the Belfast Zoo for yeah, a while. That, Yeah, I was writing that down. The Belfast Zoo seems to be having uh, some issues. Two, uh, I think we all deep down believe the animals are going to overtake us at some point. Oh, it's going to happen. They just fashioned a ladder, man. Yeah, that's ter- that's plan to the apes. Then, right then you're going to see them like like taking parts of the ladder and making them into weapons. <laughs> There's a red pandas meeting them on the street. We're going. Have you seen a red panda, though? No. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind a society run by red pandas. I'd be fine with that. They're the they're the cutest creatures I've ever seen. That would be a much cuter society. That's for sure. You, you say that until you're run by the red panda, and that's it's not point. nice to you. So. They'll play this clip over yeah. thirty years from Ian, now. And you wanted the red panda. You got the red panda. <laughs> All right. Here's my last one. It's out of Texas. Man accused of repeatedly stealing couple's car and returning it. <laughs> a man is accused of stealing an elderly couple's car in the middle of the night while they were asleep and returning it before they woke up. Police said the man used the couple's van as a getaway car in other vehicle break-ins. So that's just so meta, Sorry. right? But at the very least, you gotta you gotta appreciate that he returned it. Like there's a there's a silver lining there. He took it, but the you know he had the wherewithal to return it. That, that's guess. that's nice, I guess. All right, my last one out of Louisiana: Police wouldn't arrest wanted man who lacked ID. Wait, they would they wouldn't wouldn't arrest? because a Louisiana <laughs> man found out turning himself in on a second degree murder warrant in New Orleans wasn't as easy as he thought. Wow. He spent nearly an hour on Wednesday pleading with police to arrest him before they actually did. The 25-year-old hoped to start the process of fighting the murder charge, but the lawyer said deputies refused to process him because he didn't have a state ID on him. <laughs> Note to self, stop carrying your ID, I, I guess. Jeez, <laughs> you barely do anything. It's not me. I got no ID. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me. That's incredible. Oh, that's funny. Uh, well, it's been another great day, my man. Agreed. And got any big plans for your Tuesday? I do not. <laughs> do, do you have big plans on a Tuesday? I, every pa- I am actually excited for this, but every pastor, man, the finance team meeting. I'm going to the Ooh, finance team meeting. You are living large. I, like, I, get, I weirdly get excited about these I, things. I kind of do. Too. I wouldn't want to do it weekly, but like quarterly, I'm good with it. I, I really appreciate the people who do it. They're good people. And uh, That yeah. was nice. That was good. That uh-huh. was a good plug. Pastoral, man. Pastoral. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to do uh, tonight. So. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today on this Tuesday. Hope that you're having a good commute home. Uh, For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have a great Tuesday, Chicagoland.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.